Hi, friends. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters Podcast. Before I jump into this week's episode with my special guest, Dr. Anthony Muhammad, I just wanted to say a couple of things to listeners. First of all, I don't even know how to respond to the number of concerns, questions, cautions that are happening right now with the reopening of school because I've never seen schools politicized as much as they are being right now. And so I just want to offer a quick word of encouragement to my Principal Matters listeners, and that is that no matter what you are facing in your community or your state or your part of the country or world, you will not be able to lead if you lead from a posture of fear, um, but you will be able to lead if you lead from a posture of courage and a posture of acceptance and a posture of valuing every voice in your community. And so let me just remind you that that's the responsibility of a leader. And then second, I want to make an offer to Principal Matters listeners. Some of you are aware of the masterminds and the executive coaching that I've been doing this past year, and I'm getting ready to open up a new session going into this uh, late summer, early fall. But I want to open up a mastermind session just for principals or admins who want to collaborate around reopening. So if you're interested in a reopening mastermind, and this is free, this is not an option that I'm providing that would require an investment or any kind of long-term commitment. But if you're interested in a reopening mastermind for free for Principal Matters listeners for a limited time, please email me at will at williamdparker.com and just put reopening mastermind. And I will send you an invitation to the time when we will be meeting weekly for principals who want to participate in this unique opportunity to just be able to collaborate around solutions for moving forward. Well, having said that, I am so excited to introduce this week's special guest, Anthony Muhammad, who really needs no introduction. He's one of the best-known education consultants on school culture in the nation, and he's just got some powerful things to say about leading your schools and about race in America and about COVID-19. So I hope you enjoy this podcast, and thank you again for doing what matters, and I'll talk to you soon. Principal Matters Podcast, episode 202. COVID-19 has made all of us take a step back. We'd be hard-pressed to find an event that's altered human behavior in our lifetime equal to it. I mean, things that we took for granted, like human contact, evolved, the lines have been redrawn. This made us all become introspective. Don't waste this moment of introspection. Hi, friends. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the school leaders podcast, where each week I bring you inspiring, innovative, and imaginative ideas for your own school leadership. This week, we're talking about transforming school culture with my special guest, Dr. Anthony Muhammad. 
Dr. Muhammad is a much sought after education consultant. He currently serves as the CEO of New Frontier 21 Consulting, a company dedicated to providing cutting edge professional development to schools all over the world, throughout the world. He's recognized as one of the field's leading experts in the areas of school culture and organizational climate. He's the author of several books, including Transforming School Culture, How to Overcome Staff Division, Leading the Four Types of Teachers and Creating a Positive School Culture, which is available in its second edition from Solution Tree Press. Dr. Anthony Muhammad, welcome to Principal Matters Podcast. Feel free to fill in the gaps on that introduction. And I always like to ask my guests if there's anything else that they would like uh, listeners to know about them that I didn't cover. Well, thank you, Will, for having me on the show. And as a very small and powerful fraternity of Solution Tree authors, uh, it's a pleasure to join you uh, on your podcast. And I want to thank all those who read the book, Transforming School Culture, Second Edition. Hope I'm able to answer your questions. Uh, the only thing that I would add to my bio is that I was probably my most enjoyable job was being an eighth grade, seventh and eighth grade uh, history and social studies teacher. So mm. that would, that would, that's something that's on, not on my resume, but it was my foundation and uh, probably my most enjoyable job I've ever had. Mm. Well, I'm glad to know that you were the history teacher. I was a language arts teacher. And so much of what I see you do in your own presentations with education, educators and education leaders is just fantastic instruction. So thank you, Dr. Muhammad, for everything you've contributed to our field. I have been doing your book with other principals as a book study. And there was actually one question that one of them sent to me when he found out I was going to be interviewing you. So before we jump into your book, because I'm going to ask you to break down some specifics, I do want to pose that question before I forget. And, mm-hmm. and the question was, it was a difficult one for me too, but, but this was the question, which was, as you have observed so many schools across the nation and have so much perspective, what do you think the solution is for improving schools? Is it a dismantling of the system that we have? Mm-hmm or an improvement of the system. And so I'm going to jump there first before we even unpack some of the other parts of your book that I would like listeners to know about, um, because I want to respect my friend who sent that question and and just just jump there with you. I think that's a great question. A book that I really enjoyed is called Tinkering Towards Utopia by Larry Cuban and David Tyack, who give an analysis of the evolution of the American public school system over about a hundred year period of time. The book was written in 1995. So we're looking at about 125, 130 years of the American public school system. And it was amazing how quickly the infrastructure developed. The whole system was, the catalyst was the great European migration. You saw large-scale public school systems in cities like New York, Boston, Newark, and then it spread west. And in about a 20-year period of time, we went from no unified school systems to school systems all across the nation in all 50 states. I mean, that's a pretty awesome development. So the infrastructure of our system is solid. I don't think the system needs to be dismantled. It needs to be improved. And there are some some very awesome opportunities that are offered in American schools. The problem is they're not readily accessible to all kids. I'm not a fan of getting rid of AP or honors or gifted. All I would say to people is that what are the psychological, sociological, and systemic barriers that don't allow all kids access to those those opportunities? And it really comes down to a discriminatory mindset that these opportunities are only good for some kids, but not for all. So I'm not about lowering the bar or 
trying to get rid of rigorous opportunities. All I would say to your friend is those opportunities need to be opened up to all kids. Do you have students with disabilities in your advanced track? Are kids of poverty? Why don't we see them proportionally represented? Kids of color, uh, students who don't speak English. So the American public school system offers awesome opportunities. All I would say is the schools need to start to think, how do we make those opportunities more readily available to all kids? That's the part that's sad. So this part, the system doesn't need to be blown up and reconstructed. We just have to get out of our own way and mm-hmm. allow more kids opportunities to those or pathways to those opportunities. Thank you for that, Dr. Muhammad. And your comments remind me a lot of your dear colleague, Dr. Rick DeFore, in his book, In Praise of the American Educator, where he mm-hmm. walks through the reasons why we should be celebrating the improvements and the opportunities that we've seen mm-hmm. in American education. But at the same time, with our eyes wide open to where mm-hmm. are those inequities inequities in, in, our, in our systems and where are the areas where we can, we, we can improve. And I know you have a passion for watching schools and school leaders conduct school in a way where every kid has those opportunities. And later in, in our conversation, I, I want to talk a little bit about your own history growing up in Flint, Michigan. But before I do that, I want to give listeners an opportunity. Obviously, they should read your book uh, so that they have a full understanding of the types of educators that you've come across in your research. And one of the fascinating things about your book is at the very end, you you break down all of the different schools, school leaders, without naming names, but you you spent lots of time on your dissertation looking at why some schools are successful and some are not, and the kinds of educators who make up those systems. And you really, in the book, you break those down very simply into four categories, believers, tweeners, survivors, and fundamentalists. And I wanted to give you an opportunity in your own words, although I know you wrote an entire book about this, but to just quickly describe each of those categories for listeners who may not be familiar with with what those terms mean. Okay, great, great question. And the book was developed to be a conceptual framework. Uh, We often don't get a chance to reflect on our own behavior. And who we are and how we behave may not jive with who we think we are. So as I observe schools, if you look at that sample, there are 34 schools, but they were in parallel universes, uh, schools that are very similar with similar challenges. And one school was highly successful and the other wasn't. So the question became, how can two schools with the same challenges end up so profoundly different in their productivity? So the question that was posed is really a sociological one. What are the behaviors of the adults? in the environments where they tend to overcome obstacles and students become the beneficiaries of their efficacy? And what are the schools that have the same obstacles, but they fall flat on their face and can't seem to gain traction? So in observing these 34 schools, 17 in parallel universes, what I found was is that the questions were mainly sociological, that how they interacted with each other differed from one school to the other. What I found was there were competing ideologies. And one of the basic rules of sociology is that people gravitate towards the smallest, safest, and most familiar part of the organization. So cultures end up being divided into subcultures. And there were four very predictable subcultures with different objectives in all of the schools. It existed in the productive as well as the unproductive school. Who carried the weight of influence determine whether that school had a productive culture or an unproductive culture, because every school has a culture. It's either toxic 
or is healthy? Well, the healthy culture has had a dominance of a certain ideology in a certain group that the other culture didn't. So I found that there were four very predictable subcultures that emerged through my observations. And as you mentioned, they're the believers, tweeners, survivors, and fundamentalists. The believers are those folks who their main objective is success for every student, which is the stated objective of every school. So change and self-reflection and self-analysis wasn't strange to a believer. If we are facing a dilemma, the first thing a believer would ask is, what do I need to contribute, along with my colleagues, to fix this? So if we have a tardy problem, what do we need to do to help kids get to class on time? If we're having an issue with engagement, what can I do in my instruction that would make engagement more palatable for kids? Very self-reflective, very prescriptive in their assessment of their role. The problem I found was in schools that were toxic, the believers did not tend to have a lot of influence. They tended to retreat, be isolated in their influence, and they left the dominant culture to people that had motivations that weren't quite as pure and as student-centered as theirs. So the biggest critique in the book is that believers have to learn to be more assertive and learn to be uh, a lot more vocal. I've witnessed a small group of fundamentalists, who I'll get to shortly, dominate an entire school culture because of their how bold they were, how willing they were, and how assertive they were to be selfish while those of goodwill sat back because they didn't like conflict and turned over their school culture to others. Every school has some great classrooms, even dropout factories. The problem with schools like dropout factories is that that one or two great classrooms aren't moved up to scale because you want great classrooms in every class in a great school. The second subculture we call the tweeners. These are our new educators. They are probationary to our culture. And what I found was they come in with the DNA to become believers. They're open. They're optimistic. They're willing to change. They're self-reflective. And whoever socializes them first will have a great impact on how they tend to practice from that point forward. So I was very careful to note that the administrators that I, I, I observed, who put a lot of time and resources and energy into the proper socialization and professional growth of their tweeners, had a much higher likelihood of long-term organizational and cultural health. The third subculture we call the survivors. These are people who have been run over by the system. They were probably ill-prepared. They probably didn't receive a lot of adequate support. They're probably placed in positions where their skill set didn't match the task. And over time, they forget why they're even there survival becomes their their goal. And we call that in the literature burnout. And burnout is very detrimental to not just the educator, but it's detrimental to the student. And just something I'd like to point your listeners to, a recent study released by Harcourt Brace uh, on the state of the teaching profession, they do it every year, every other year. In 2019, only 34% of American teachers were optimistic about the future of our profession. So we're producing conditions that push people into hopelessness. And what we found an abundance of survivors, obviously, that was a pretty unhealthy environment. Wow. Last but not least, the fundamentals. I like to call the fundamentalist a me first as opposed to a we first team player. And I like to simplify it for your listeners. If you ever think about an athletics team that a very talented athlete 
who cared more about my personal statistics than team goals and aspirations. What happens is that division that that athlete causes in the locker room undermines team productivity. If I care more about how many points I score or how my, my position on the team, then I don't coordinate myself well with others and I undermine team productivity. Well, that's what fundamentalists do to an organization. There's something about the system that they covet, good, bad, or indifferent. And their need to maintain privilege, whether that's autonomy in instruction, autonomy in assessment, autonomy in discipline, what's best for the organization becomes secondary to what's best and most comfortable for the fundamentalists. And what was interesting, Will, is that they would gravitate towards one another. It was almost like they had a dog whistle. And they would then work together because they had a common issue mm-hmm. and they would engage in things like defamation, disruption and distraction of, of changing the environment. In the environments that I found that were toxic, they were dominated by the fundamentalists, mm. typically very bold, very abrasive, very condescending, often uh, very subversive in their resistance. They would produce covert political alliances often engage in slander, and it can get pretty dangerous and people's livelihoods could be threatened. And what I ask people that find themselves as they read the book, possessing traits of a fundamentalist, I just ask them, for God's sake, just stop. Just stop. We don't need to have a forum. We don't need to have a, a rehab. If your behaviors undermine an institution designed to serve kids, who could live with themselves saying, so what? And if people refuse to self-correct once they're aware, that's when the organization has to use the authority to either force that person to change or show them the door. Wow. Well, Principal Matters listeners, obviously, if you're like me, you're taking lots of mental notes right now because I want you to apply that to your own leadership too. Not Not just reflecting on your staff or the people that you're leading, but think about in your own leadership first. Uh, which categories most define the way you lead? Are you a believer, someone that has the assumption that all that we're doing is for the success of all in our schools? Or maybe you're a young uh, leader who's a tweener and you're still trying to define where you're going to fit. Are you a survivor, which means that you're really serving without inspiration and maybe just trying to hang on till the end? Or perhaps you're a fundamentalist who works really, really hard to protect the status quo And once you've self-evaluated, then begin to apply that to your staff. And so, Dr. Muhammad, what I really like about the tone of your book, too, is that with each of these categories, you recognize the strengths, but also the pitfalls. And especially with fundamentalist, I, I really like it that you take an opportunity to not necessarily criticize their instructional abilities. There are some fundamentalists who can be, whose students' assessments can show that they're still performing well, but that's not what you're talking about. You're talking about the ability for them to watch out for all students mm-hmm. and not, not protect a privileged number of whether that's the subjects that they teach mm-hmm. or the positions that they hold or the perspectives that they, that they want to protect, but really opening up to the kind of educational environment where I'm in this for all of us. And so thank you for those perspectives because those are so powerful. Any other reflections on that before I transition yeah, it, to another question? Yes, it's really the fundamentalist who's very skilled threatens the development of others. So if I'm accustomed to getting all of the honors classes and I do whatever I need to do to maintain that position, 
Now my need to preserve what's privileged for me undermines the growth and development of the entire institution. So mm-hmm. my selfishness undermines the growth of the entire institution. That queen of fourth grade who doesn't want the other teachers on the fourth grade team to develop because it threatens her perception of herself as the best. Mm-hmm. Privilege works in many, many different ways. So it doesn't mean that you're, you're, you're unskilled. You're just not healthy for the institution. Mm-hmm. You know, that begs the question, which I'm sure some listeners are asking right now too, especially school leaders that are thinking about their staff and thinking about the health or the toxicity of their own culture. And that is, what do I do next? And this is why I want them to read your book because you go, you unpack so much of, of the ways that you can be supporting your youngest leaders, the ways that you can be encouraging the perspectives of your believers, but also the ways that you can be having what you call crucial conversations or confronting the brutal facts of what's happening with your fundamentalists. And so mm-hmm. I do want to pause there for a moment because just from my own experience, I remember the first time that I encountered your research and listened to your presentations. Those were the questions going through my mind, Dr. Muhammad, which was, you know, what now? How as a leader do I respond to all of these dynamics that exist within a culture mm-hmm. in a way where I can positively move forward? And so I, I know you've unpacked all of that in your book, but what would be a, a response to that question? Great question. Most fundamentalists are showing the ill effects of poor leadership and poor socialization and professional growth and development. So they learn to cope by being self-centered as opposed to organizationally centered. Uh, The follow-up to really give a leadership answer is the book Time for Change, which is a response to the analysis of what calls fundamentalists to be fundamentalists. So we look at it through the lens of support and accountability. People become fundamentalists for one or two reasons. They didn't get the proper support and they spiraled into an unproductive mode of behavior. Or they've gotten the proper support, but they refused to change. Mm. So either they were ill-supported or they were never held accountable. Our theory, I co-authored that book with Dr. Elise Cruz, is that a leader who's diagnosing fundamentalist behavior has to start with the assumption that perhaps there's some gap in their development that I can fill in. And we answer those three gaps with three questions. Why, who, and how? Why is communication? That's a meeting of the minds. Maybe people don't understand why they need to be a part of a collaborative team. Maybe they don't understand the benefit. Maybe they feel they're good enough by themselves. If I grow in an environment where communication is poor and authority is the only means used to get my cooperation, then we don't have an intellectual meeting of the minds. So you can, you can address a lot of needs of fundamentalists with just improved communication. Some might have been abused in the past, misuse of authority, a bully on their team. So their issue is more emotional. It's mistrust. That's the who. So a leader who recognizes mistrust has to really activate their emotional intelligence, which is very different than cognitive intelligence. If you think about a person who's been through five principles in five years, or three principles in six years, there's a level of pessimism that's going to grow because every time they give faith to the organization or to the leadership, their faith is not rewarded. I like to use the example. Imagine getting married to somebody who's been divorced three times in four years. You have to know going into that relationship, there's going to be some apprehensions. And what I like leaders to recognize is that it's no knock on you. They don't even know you yet. You're paying for stuff that other people did. It's going to require a level of patience. That's a great analogy. The third is how. We make a lot of assumptions about teacher capacity. 
I'll work with a district, just a narrative, in Massachusetts, who had a lot of work to do on reading. And they embraced the Fontas and Pinnell reading recovery method for their K2. They did a half-day workshop the day before school, the day before the first day of school, and expected those teachers to be able to implement a, a, a strategy as profound as reading recovery with a half-day workshop. And then got incensed because they weren't seeing growth. Well, duh, if you never make an investment in a person's professional capacity, don't be shocked if they do it poorly. Mm -hmm. So if a leader answers the question, do the people I'm leading know why they're doing what they're doing? Do they trust me to get them there? And do they know how to do it? What we found is that'll take care of about 98% of the legitimate needs that people have to change. So often what we see in fundamentalist behavior is a response to improper leadership. But there's that small group who all that works is authority. We call them level four fundamentalists. And I call them over my dead body people. Dr. Cruz calls them cave people, colleagues against virtually everything. I don't care how well you explain it. I don't care how many olive branches you extend. I don't care how much training you provide. They've drawn a line in the stand, sand and they've said, you can't make me. And the only thing that works with them is, yes, I can. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. And I will use every means of authority that I have to make sure that you do it. Now, this typically happens when that one or two people becomes a clear outlier to the rest of the group. The will of the group is evident. Everybody's on the bus but these two. At that point, what's, what's necessary is for the leader to develop enough courage to use his or her authority to make it so uncomfortable that that person will not feel as if the culture is conducive to their antics anymore. Mm. What we found is they'll do one of two things. They'll change or they'll leave. Yes. And I'm okay with either one. I completely agree. And so often when I'm talking to school leaders, Dr. Muhammad, that's a conversation, especially with young leaders that I like to remind them of is the importance of being willing to make people uncomfortable mm -hmm. until they either agree or they leave. I mean, so, and so that's no matter where you are in your, whether you're in a district that has a strong union presence or whether you're in one that doesn't, or whether you're in with the presence of a lot of tenured teachers or younger teachers, that dynamic works in every setting, Absolutely. which is that leaders have to be committed to making other people uncomfortable mm -hmm. if they're toxic until they change or until they decide to go someplace else, because that's something you can control. Yeah. You, there's a lot of things you can't control, but that's yeah. something that you can. I want to yeah, say ahead. one more thing about that is that believers have then have an obligation to let that handful of outliers know that you have, your political influence is gone. If the leader can be seen as a boogeyman or bullying the people who have now been targeted, believers have to stand their ground and not be sympathetic. Because then if a person can build alliances, politics is a very important part of culture. And believers have to do their parts. And no, we've tried to warn you for years. We don't feel sorry. We need you to show up to your team meeting on time. We need you to do your formative assessments. We need you to participate in our intervention time. No, we don't feel sorry for you. We like you. We don't dislike you. But believers have to do their part with peer pressure as well. Mm -hmm. Mm, that's a good word. And those, there's so much to unpack there, Dr. Muhammad. And I want to respect your time because I know that you are in several meetings today and I'm so privileged to have you speaking to Principal Matters listeners. I hope you don't mind if I 
transition this question to some current events because Absolutely. because I also respect your voice as an education leader, um, as a veteran administrator, and also as a black educator. Mm-hmm. And so when I look across what's happening in our nation, not just with COVID-19 closures, but also with what's going on with the raised awareness now for social justice, the raised awareness of, of inequalities that we see. You have such a special story. You know, you grew up in Flint, Michigan. You had a family that valued education, and yet you saw in, inequities within the practices of your own community. And obviously, mm-hmm. even today, you see those things. And so I wanted to give you an opportunity to, to reflect either personally or professionally about how leaders can be responding to the things that they see happening around them through the lens of, of what you've learned about transforming school cultures. Absolutely. I applaud those of all communities, nationalities, and races protesting for fair treatment systemically but by the police and society at large. But I want people listening to know this isn't a new fight. It didn't just start with the senseless murder of George Floyd, but this has been an ongoing flight. So for people who are new to it, welcome to the movement. And a society in which you're considered a citizen and you're supposed to have equal protection under the law, it shouldn't be considered extraordinary that you demand that the society that you're a part of treat you like they treat everybody else. That shouldn't be a new idea. That shouldn't be considered revolutionary. I don't get a black tax bill. I get a tax bill. I don't get a black ballot. I get a ballot. So it should should be reasonable that I would expect that I would get treated with the same courtesy and respect for my government that I support at the same level that other people support it. So I don't want people or governments to think that they're doing people a favor by being fair. Fairness should be the standard by which all human beings live, no matter who I love, where I live, what I look like, what I drive, whether I'm rich or poor. That's just basic humanity. Mm-hmm. So to the government officials who are coming around to the issue of fairness, welcome to the fight. But don't expect extra brownie points. You're about 240 years late. But thank you for finally joining the fight. As it pertains to the communities who have been marginalized, I don't want it to be lost that as people are fighting for justice, that our communities don't forget about their own responsibility and efficaciousness. Uh, Prior to integration, there were many Black towns in the South that had thriving businesses. We created many historically black colleges and universities. And then at some point, that level of self-efficacy started to wane as integration became more popular. Well, I don't want the black community to, to forget that we know how to build institutions too. We know how to build our community as well. And petitioning government is one part of that, but having enough self-respect to build our own community volunteer at our own schools, demand excellence from our own teachers, to have fundraisers to support schools like they do in Malibu or Gross Point or Palm Springs. Self-respecting communities respect themselves first. So yes, we can scream at the police, we can scream at the government, and they deserve to be screamed at. But apply that same standard to yourself. Frederick Douglass said that power concedes nothing without a demand. And You can't expect other people to respect you if you don't respect yourself. So the critique internally has to be as strong as the critique externally. And that's when we get equity. And when I work with schools that serve high numbers of students of color, I want them to focus on themselves. 
you know, we can petition the government, we can change the standardized tests, make them more culturally responsive. I agree with all of that. When you see a black child come into the class, don't criminalize him walking in the class before he even gets a chance. Because now you're doing exactly what we accuse the police of doing. So self-respect leads to other people respecting you. And mm-hmm. I've never felt the need to petition others to respect me because I respect myself so much. I'm going to make you respect me. I don't feel superior, inferior to anybody or superior to anybody. And I expect the same. And when communities of color start to carry ourselves in that way, then the respect will be given freely. A beggar can't get justice. Only an equal gets justice. Mm-hmm. That is so good. Dr. Muhammad, if you don't mind repeating that Frederick Douglass quote, because I love quotes like that, and I want to keep that one in my mind. Frederick Douglass said that power concedes nothing without a demand. Mm -hmm. So if people don't give up power unless they're made to. Mm, that's very powerful. Thank you for, for that good reminder. And and thank you for your perspective too. As we wrap up this conversation this week, first of all, I just want to commend you for the contributions that you have made to educators here in the U.S. and across the world, Dr. Muhammad, and also just for the for the role model that you've been for so many leaders like myself. And so on behalf of other education leaders who follow your work and read your books, thank you so much for the work that you do. And also as a Black leader, thank you so much for the ways that you model for all of us the things that you just explained in terms of of never feeling either inferior or superior, but that the ways that we treat each other with fairness and equity is a human right. Thank you so much. I wanted to give you an opportunity as we wrap up today for any final words or thoughts, any ways that listeners could connect with you because there may be people listening right now that are new to your work. And then um, if you have a book or other recommended source that, resource that you'd like to tell leaders about, uh, I wanted to give you a chance to touch on those things before we go. Okay. Thank you. Well, kind of a parting shot is that COVID-19 has made all of us take a step back and reassess. I mean, it's we'd be hard pressed to find an event that's altered human behavior in our lifetime equal to it. I mean, things that we took for granted, like human contact, evolved, the lines have been redrawn. And this made us all become introspective. Don't waste this moment of introspection. Uh, it's all made us evaluate and reevaluate what's important and what's valuable. Our family, our people. I mean, COVID made everybody equal. And we shouldn't lose that moment. Uh, none of us could go out. None of us could do these things. And we don't want to go back to the old normal. The same level of compassion and brother and sisterhood that we all experience as we supported each other through this pandemic. Bring it back to school when we're all fully allowed to go back to school. Don't, don't lose it. Because I think this moment has taught us how fragile what life is and how it can be changed just like that. That none of us really have much power and authority. We're all just subject to the environment that we're blessed to live in that could change any moment. So don't forget that. Uh, we only live so long. And try to do some good while you're here. We're all going to take that dirt nap at some point. Uh, and I, who wants to go to the grave not saying that I made the, the world better. As far as contact, I'm on the social media platforms, except Instagram. I don't know. I, I, I don't get that. It just looks like Facebook to me. Uh, but I'm on Twitter, and my Twitter name is at NewFrontier21. And you can like my page on Facebook, and it's Dr. Anthony Muhammad. Also, I have a website, which is www.NewFrontier21.com. And you can go on there, have some articles that I've published, you can get access to. You can, there's a direct link uh, for contact us that comes right to my email address. 
And we have all the solutions for events that you can come to. We have a cultural and achievement institute that's going to be in San Diego, COVID willing, uh, in November. Sign up, bring a team. We're starting a revolution with changing school culture. Come on out to San Diego. It's not a bad place to be in November. And I want to thank you. And also for us books, I have other books out, The Will to Lead, The Skill to Teach, Overcoming the Achievement Gap Trap, Time for Change. And we just finished the rough draft for the third edition of the, the original PLC at Workbook. Oh, congratulations. Along with Mike, Mike Matos and Dr. Bob Aker. And as an anthology, I just uh, finished with Marzano and his associates about the connection between PLC and high reliability schools. So if you just go to Amazon and put in my name, all the books come up. Mm. Well, Dr. Muhammad, thank you so much for the time that you've given Principal Matters listeners this week to, to learn from you, to be inspired by you. And Principal Matters listeners, let me just encourage you to check the show notes so that you can find those links. You can connect with Dr. Muhammad, his resources, and the PD that he's offering through his organization and also through Solution Tree. Dr. Muhammad, thank you so much for your leadership. And Principal Matters listeners, thank you for all that you do because what you do matters. And we'll talk to you soon. If you'd like other free resources like this one, you can check out all my posts at williamdparker.com.